0: So we've been talking about different characters like this, and it's actually really good news to discover this. As depressing as it might sound, it's really good news because it means there's hope for all of us, right? We all have our struggles. We all have this messy existence that we live. And if God can use Moses, who had a temper, if he can use Eve, who struggled with unbelief, If he can use Abraham in spite of his insecurity, he can use us, right? He can use you, he can use me in powerful ways to accomplish his purposes. So in the next few weeks, we're going to talk about David's passive parenting. That will be a fun one. We're going to talk about Absalom's gossip. We're going to talk about Sarah's jealousy. Lots of good stuff coming, but today we are going to talk about Balaam's greed, now, if you hear that name, Balaam, and you're not immediately familiar with who that is, you are not alone, so that's okay. Don't get up and, and walk out those doors. Um, Balaam is this really fascinating character in the Bible with just this action-packed story. I, I don't know why nobody's ever made a movie about Balaam, because if they did, I would be the first in line to see it. Like, maybe The Chosen, season four, will go in this direction. I, I kind of doubt it, but you, you can keep your hopes up, um, You can read about Balaam in Numbers 22 through 24, and he's mentioned throughout the New Testament as well and other places there. So you'll see Balaam come up again and again, more than I I thought he did. So, in the interest of time, rather than reading you uh, Numbers 22 through 24, which would take much longer than most of the mothers here are probably willing to give grace for, um, I'm going to do some summarizing here. Basically, here's what's going on in Numbers 22. So the Israelites are in the middle of their wilderness wanderings. You remember Moses had rescued them from slavery in Egypt, and they're out there in the middle of the wilderness, and they're wandering around, right? They're not in the the promised land of Canaan yet. And they're going to. Under Joshua, there's going to be this thing called the conquest, where they enter the promised land of Canaan, and they defeat all of the other nations that are there, essentially, and they they take over the land. But before this happens, there's some kind of preliminary battles in the Transjordan region, which is just east of the Jordan River. And the Israelites are having a lot of success with this. They destroy Arad. They defeated the Amorites. And now they're up against the Moabites. And the Moabites are like Israel's ancient enemy, right? Like Osakis versus Sox Center, that kind of thing. Um, And the king of the Moabites is this guy named Balak. And Balak is scared. Understandably, he's scared that the Israelites are going to defeat him just like they've been doing with all of the other nations around them. He needs help. So what does he do? Well, he sends messengers to someone named Balaam. The story's a little bit Balak, Balaam. You know, like God does that sometimes. He uses the names that are like one, one letter off, and it's kind of hard to keep track. But Balaam is this, this mysterious character. We don't know a lot about him. This is the first time that he's mentioned. Um, Balaam was not, in fact, an Israelite. So Balak needs help. He sends messengers to this Balaam guy, offering to pay him money to put a curse on the Israelites. Now, we don't know exactly who Balaam was, but he lived hundreds of miles north near the Euphrates River. River, which would have been like a 400-mile journey, just this, this really, really far away. So he's not someone that's, that's nearby at all. And he, uh, he was, again, this really mysterious figure. But interestingly enough, they discovered, archaeologists discovered a plastic inscription from the 8th century B.C. with his name on it, and it describes him as a seer of the gods. So it may have been the case that um, Balaam was kind of this spellcaster for hire, like he trafficked in magic and uh, spells and this sort of thing. But he also seems to have some familiarity with Yahweh, because he mentions him by name, and he even speaks directly with Yahweh. Okay? So so we've got Balaam up here in the north king of Balak sends this delegation up to him, this whole delegation of princes, and and they've got money, and they ask him to come with them so that he can curse the Israelites and that they can be defeated, right? Well, God, however, as you can imagine, the Israelites are God's chosen people. God's not down with this, so he tells Balaam not to do it because the Israelites are his people and they are to be blessed, not cursed. So when the delegation comes to Balaam, He says no. He says no to their offer, but he does it kind of in a a hesitating, sort of way. Um, He entertains the idea, uh, but he still says no. Right. So, so this delegation heads back down. This takes this four hundred mile journey, and they come all the way back up a second time. And now they've got the big guns. Right. Like they've got the really important people. You know, you send in your, your salesman and he can't get the job done, so you send in the CEO. This is kind of what happens. They send the big guns and they 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 offer him even more money this time around. Uh and they offer him an even greater reward if he will come and curse the Israelites. And he says no again, but only kind of, like in a half-hearted sort of way. Uh like he really still wants the money, you can tell. He wants the fame that they're offering him despite the fact that God had told him not to do it. So God sees Balaam right there, right? Balaam's kind of on the fence. He, he wants the bribe, and he wants the money, and yet God is telling him not to do this. So he's, there's, there's some tension going on here, and God sees that. He looks down, he sees his tension in Balaam's heart, and as a kind of test, he permits Balaam to say yes. Now, you have to read between the lines a bit to get this. And Balaam does. He agrees to the bribe. He travels with the princes of Moab to King Balak. The allure of riches was just too much for him to resist. And here's what happens next. So I'm going to read this section for you. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Numbers 22, verses 22 through 35. Numbers 22, 22 through 35. It says, but God's anger was kindled because he went. This is Balaam. God's anger was kindled because Balaam went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards, with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. You know how it is when you're having trouble with your donkeys, right? Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she laid down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck his donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? Isn't this kind of trippy? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak doesn't this sound like a great movie? I have to, in my mind, I, I, have to, I have to get rid of the idea of a talking donkey because, well, you know, if you've ever seen Shrek, right? Donkey! Like, I, Ed, I'm thinking the voice of Eddie Murphy here. I don't think that's what it is. Um, God uses a talking donkey to bring Balaam to repentance and confront him with his need for forgiveness. Long story short, after this whole episode... Balaam goes, he meets with Balak, the king of the Moabites, but instead of cursing the Israelites like Balak is paying him to do, he blesses them. And and not once, not twice, not even three times, four separate times, he does this. You would think Balak would get the hint after the first couple. Uh, Apparently not. So despite his greedy desire for money, God ended up using Balaam in a powerful way to speak his word to the Israelites and to bless them. Now, there's a lot more to the story of Balaam. If you were to graph his his story out on paper, it would be something along the lines of this. And I'm not even sure where you would say it ends. Because he eventually reverts to his old ways of doing the magic and the spells and getting paid to to do this, to to put curses on people. He, He goes back to those old ways. He seduces the Israelites into idolatry. Finally, he dies on the battlefield, killed by the very people he once blessed, the Israelites. He vacillates just back and forth between good and evil actions. He's this conflicted character, a sinner and a saint at the same time. What's interesting is that I mentioned there's this eighth century inscription, right, where it mentions the name of of Balaam, the seer of the gods. The interesting thing about this particular stone is that even that testifies to him being sinner and saint at the same time. Uh, Here's what one source says. It says, this stone, it has both Aramaic, which is the language of Jesus, and Canaanite, which is the language of the Canaanites, the people of false gods features and therefore scholars are divided as to its precise linguistic classification even the stone is sinner saint but Balaam's divided heart doesn't stop God from using him from bringing him to repentance and forgiving him now what was Balaam's sin what, what was the thing that he was struggling with? What was he wrestling with? Well, it's greed. Greed is what's attacking him. Greed is, is what he gives into. Second Peter 2.15 tells us this explicitly. It says, Balaam, the son of Beor, loved gain from wrongdoing. He wanted the riches that the princes of Moab offered him, and he was even willing to betray God in order to get it. So let's talk about greed. What is it? Well, I found a good working definition here, and I I think this is really good. So let's start here. This is by Pastor Brian Wilkerson. He said, greed is an insatiable desire for more than you need. An insatiable desire for more than you need. I think that's really good. A couple of things to drill down on in this definition. Insatiable. Insatiable. Can't. Be satisfied, right? it can't be quenched, no matter how much you have, you always want more. The author of Ecclesiastes puts it like this. this: is Ecclesiastes five ten says he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity, and vanity here really just means meaningless it's it's pointless it's Bottomless, this this appetite. You're never satisfied, and you're always going to want more. So, so greed is insatiable. The other part here, uh, the other phrase to highlight is more than you need. It's not wrong to want more, but more than you need. So, whether it's it's money or, or possessions or whatever. Wanting more of something is not intrinsically bad. If your grocery bill is $600 a month and you only make 500 a month, you should want more money because you need to pay the bills. That's not sinful. That's not intrinsically a bad thing. And even other stuff, right? I would very much love a new pair of Nike Air Force Ones. Maybe I'll get it for Mother's Day when I go home. I don't know. Isn't that how it works? The mothers give, they give you gifts? No, I got that wrong. Anyway, sorry, honey. Um, Right, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. What is sinful is when we desire more than we need. When we think more about, you can think about it this way. It's when we think about more about what we don't have than what we do have. We fixate more on what we don't have than what we do have. When is when enough is, is never really enough, and we're always asking the question, what's next, right? Here's the bottom line. Greed is a refusal to be content with God's gift. It's a refusal to rest in Christ. Commandments 9 through 10, which if you were here A couple of weeks ago, you heard the confirmation students talk about these, right? So I I won't make you recite them to me. I'll I'll, I'll just give them to you. But commandment number nine, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Commandment number ten, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And then there's a question afterwards. It says, how should you guard against covetousness? Addie? This was your question. I won't ask you. I promise. But she knows that you can talk to her afterwards. She'll give it to you. The answer to this, how she guard against covetousness. I should guard against covetousness by asking God to make me content with what I have, by wishing my neighbors every blessing, and by helping them keep what is theirs. Uh, This word covet is kind of strange. Like, we don't use it a lot in in modern-day language, do we? Like, hey, man want to go over to the Albersons with me and covet some sheep after the service? Yeah. Pretty great, huh? We don't use that language, so it seems a little bit foreign to us. But the word for covet is what we're talking about with greed here. It means desire or crave. It's a lusting after more, more, more. More out of life, more money, more friends, more possessions, more earthly security. It just never ends. So the million-dollar question here then, right, is how do I know? How do I know when I've crossed that line from desire, which is okay, good thing, to greed? Pinpoint that for me, Pastor. Well, the fact that we're looking for more rules and regulations to help us figure this out already tells us we're on the wrong track because we're looking to the law and not the gospel to rescue us. The thing is, though, we can't be saved by rules and regulations. And even when we have good rules and regulations, we're always wondering, like, where's that line so I can know how close I can get to it without crossing it? Greed is a particularly interesting vice. Because I'm a pastor, right? So people will come to me, and, and I've had people share with me, things that they struggle with i 've had people express struggles with with lust and with with anger, but I have yet to have someone walk into my office, knock on the door, and say, "Hey, pastor, can you pray with me I 'm just struggling with greed so' it's, it, it's kind of a, a hidden one that we're not particularly uh, willing to discuss um a greed is something that we all hate, but it's almost impossible to recognize in ourselves because we have so many blind spots. I love what Tim Keller says about this. Here's his quote. He says, even though it is clear that the world is filled with greed and materialism, almost no one thinks it is true of them. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So how do we know if it's true of us? How do we know if we're being greedy? Well, I don't know because I don't have your heart. But here are some good self-diagnostic questions to consider that might be worth asking. Do I ever shop compulsively? Not because I really need something, but because I'm bored. How much time do I spend scrolling through Facebook Marketplace? Do I have credit card debt? How often do I splurge on luxuries? Am I always looking for the next project to work on in the house? Am I constantly scheming for my next side hustle? Do I compare my toys, boats, campers, house, snowmobile, shotguns, whatever, to my neighbors? Do I want the newest, latest iPhone or Nike Air Force Ones? Guys, I don't know why that one keeps coming up. Um, Is anybody wearing a pair today? You must be feeling really bad about it. I'm sorry, Becky. Am I always browsing through magazines of lake homes and real estate? Do I regularly seek to redecorate rooms, not because they need it, but because I have some money burning a hole in my wallet? Dagger to the heart, right? But the biggest question to ask with all of these is, is this desire of mine, this desire for more, coming from a place of contentment or restlessness? Am I content in the amount of money and possessions God has given me, or am I trusting myself to supply more than what he deems necessary? Am I saying, God, this is great and everything, but I need more. It's not enough. Am I looking to money and possessions for my security to give me the joy and happiness that only God can give? I think if we're honest with ourselves, it's pretty clear where we land on this. We don't have to look far to realize that we all fall short of the glory of God and we all justly deserve His wrath and condemnation. But here's something else I discovered. It's really interesting. If you search for the word greed in a thesaurus, you'll get a bunch of synonyms, words that mean the same thing. Impatient, eager, rapacious, selfish, carnivorous, gluttonous. But do you know what the antonyms are? Antonyms just means the the opposite. You know what the, the antonyms to greed are? Benevolent, charitable, generous extravagant why does this matter because the antonym to our selfish hearts is jesus benevolent charitable generous extravagant grace and love unlike us he didn't withhold anything He gave and gave and gave until there was literally nothing left of himself to give, spilling every drop of his own blood to forgive you and to ransom you. The Apostle Paul says it like this in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, Jesus' life wasn't driven by an insatiable quest for more, but less. He left the riches of heaven behind to become human, to walk this earth, live the life of perfect obedience that we could not, to suffer the punishment we deserved on the cross, and to rise again, assuring us that we too will rise from the dead and live forever in the new heavens and the new earth With him. And all of this, all of these riches and treasures are ours through faith alone. And I think the best part of this is that when that day finally arrives, we'll never ask for more again. Because we'll have found rest for our souls. We'll be content in Jesus. He has always been enough. It's just that when that day comes, we'll actually know it and not just believe it. But until that day arrives, Jesus gives us a helper. He gives us his Holy Spirit. My prayer for us today is that the Holy Spirit would work in our hearts to help us rest in what God has provided and accomplished and that we would hunger and thirst for nothing but him alone. May he continue to reorient our hearts toward the only thing that will truly satisfy Amen. Come back next week, we'll talk about David's passive parenting. Let's pray. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at PastorChellog at gmail.com. That's Pastor K J O L H A U G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen.